I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton, and today I am with Gitto Harry, the journalist and how should I describe you? PR consultant? Well, a communicator, I guess. So it's part of the same same food chain, I like to think, that a storyteller. And the difference between a journalist who tells other people's stories and a spin doctor is you tell one particular person or organisation or country or club's story. Uh, and I guess I've done both. Great. So let's go right the way back to the beginning, because you're a Cardiff lad, aren't you, Gitto? I am, yeah, born and bred. Uh, unusually for Cardiff, quite unusually for Cardiff, you come from a Welsh-speaking background. Unusually in the sense of not being a high percentage of the population, but the bulk of the Welsh-speaking population of Wales is down here in the southeast because the bulk of the population of Wales is down here in the southeast. But in my case, Dad was from Anglesey, though born in Dudley initially, and Mum was from Carmarthen. And I did spend about 17 years just outside Cardiff on the campus of what was then a mental hospital. That's what they were called in those days, certainly called Hensel, which is now the Vale, where the Welsh rugby team uh, sort of trained. So I grew up for a couple of years in a castle and then five years in a, in a rented house that went with a hospital with, with people who are now in the community roaming around having been locked up as they were back in the 1960s. Welsh medium education, how important was that uh, for you? I grew up as a monoglot Welsh speaker. My own kids are bilingual in, in Welsh and English and, you know, picking up other things along the way. But I had a pretty monoglot Welsh speaking upbringing in that I encountered English very much as a second language when I started school, initially in Tonarevel and then uh, in Cardiff. And to be honest, until I left school, it was, it was a language I used very infrequently, other than to read and write and use textbooks and all the rest of it. But I did all my studies in Welsh, even sciences at O-level as it was then, even economics, A-level through the medium of Welsh. Church was in Welsh. Most friends of the family were in Welsh. So it was, it was quite a quite very Welsh-speaking upbringing, to be honest. And then after your studies, and of course, uh, you, uh, remind us where you went. You know, well, studies. I scraped from a school going in Harry, which was a very cultured school where we did a lot of singing, not least on the bus to and from school, which was 15 miles each way. It was the making of most of us, for better or worse. But I, I managed to scrape into the Queen's College, Oxford, and read Politics, Philosophy and Economics, which was something I was particularly proud of at the time. It's been widely discredited by uh, the fact that so many cabinet ministers over the last 10 or 20 years studied that and made a mess of running the UK. But it was a great course for me. I made some good friends there. I had a great time and then came back to my hometown of Cardiff to study at the very distinguished Cardiff School of Journalism. As did I before you. Indeed. As did all the best journalists. <laughs> now, at the time when you were doing PPE at Oxford, did you at any stage consider becoming a politician? Um, I don't think becoming a politician was on my mind then. I thought I might want to become a barrister and a libel lawyer at that. I was fascinated by ideas and by debate and by being counterintuitive and going against the grain, which may be a clue to some of the things that that happened next. So I wrestled hard about whether I wanted to go to the bar or become a journalist. And there's similar skills. I've reflected a lot on this because a lot of good friends did go to the bar. There's similar skills in that you need to combine an argument and a case and wordsmithery, if you like, with an ability to engage an audience and engage an audience on paper for solicitors and, and, and for print journalists. But also if you end up as a broadcaster, which I did, 
there's an element of performance. And I did love drama at school, but I was neither good looking enough nor talented enough as an actor to, to, to make it as an actor. But the, the ability to combine intellectual argument and some sort of moral crusade, which sounds a bit grand, but there's a bit of that in journalism, holding the rich and powerful and mighty to account with performing, just seemed like the perfect combination. So what was it that took you into broadcasting rather than print? I think for me it is that desire to sort of perform, I guess, and more radio than television, which remains the case, though, you know, if people employ me for television are listening, I obviously love the buzz of live television, but I think that radio is my favourite medium of all, including the printed word. I think radio is most immediate, highly intelligent and deeply intimate, and that's where I think I have been happiest and perhaps have done my best work over the years. You did, however, counterintuitively, do some work at the South Wales Argus. That's not true. I saw that when I... It proves again how when Wikipedia I recently, indeed, you cannot upon. rely. I, I, I didn't realise that had gone on Wikipedia because I, I saw it in a report of me very recently, very, very kindly, being given a, an honorary doctorate by the University of South Wales and very inspiring to see the young people... Uh, there, there are studying all kinds of fascinating things, not least sort of forensic science and engineering and doing placements with aerospace, but also that some young people still think that this old thing called journalism uh, is worth going into and that actually making sense of the world is an important pastime. But no, I've never worked on the archives. I did work at Swansea Sound when I was at the School of Journalism in Cardiff. I did a stint down there, work experience, did a stint at HTV. But other than that, I was pretty swiftly into the sort of large bosom of Auntie Beeb when I emerged from journalism school and spent 18 years there. The thing about the BBC, of course, is that uh, there are very strict rules, and indeed this applies to other broadcasting mm. uh, organisations as well, very strict rules about impartiality. Mm. With your desire to uh, change the world or whatever, did you ever find it frustrating to have to be impartial? I think it's fair to say I was 100% signed up to that, and I remain of the view that if you have the privilege of forcing everyone in the UK to pay a TV licence and the privilege of being in their living room, whether they want you there or not, whether they choose to watch you or not, then you owe it to them not to make assumptions about where public opinion is. You owe it to them to be non-partisan, which doesn't mean that you don't also owe it to them to try and sort of push the boundaries so that you call a spade a spade. So showing political colours, definitely off the cards. And to be honest, that was quite easy for me. I grew up in a household where, as you may have guessed, not only was it monoglot well speaking, but Dad went to prison uh, for the Welsh language and stood for Plaid Cymru. It was very much a Plaid Cymru background, but I don't think I have been in Wales for any election. As in, from the age of 18, I have lived, apart from a couple of years for a postgrad and a start here, outside of Wales. So the option of voting Plaid Cymru, even if I had wanted to do that, was not really there. So in a way, it made me a non-combatant when I encountered people who felt very passionately that they were Labour or Conservatives. And to be honest... I took the view that you could either keep everyone happy that they thought you were one of them, or you could annoy everyone and they think you're the opposite. And I managed somehow to achieve both at different stages in my career. Chris, you, as a broadcast journalist, you've been around a bit, haven't you? Because um, you worked, you did work in Wales for some time, but you've also done uh, a lot on the network. You've uh, you've been abroad. You have been in Rome. You've been in um, in New York. Mm elsewhere. 
What was it, do you think, that led you in the direction of a more internationalist perspective? I think I've always loved the idea of travel, and I had, like many a journalist, a very, very lucky break, I think, about two years in to working for BBC Wales, I was based for them in London. And somebody, a very seasoned reporter in North Wales at the time, who was meant to fly out to Saudi Arabia with the Queen's Dragoon Guards, didn't get his act together and missed the plane or wasn't going to make the plane. And there was one chance to, they call it embedded these days, in those days it wasn't quite like that, but there was a chance to get out there, to be with this Queen's Dragoon Guards that were roughly 80 or 90% Welsh boys, not not far off my age at the time, I was 22, and I got to go to Saudi Arabia for six weeks, and off the back of that I got to spend the war itself, the first Gulf War, in, in Jordan, and then went into northern Iraq with the Royal Marines. And I apologise now to all my close friends at the time for being utterly unbearable for years afterwards because nothing in life could be as exciting as driving around northern Iraq, sometimes with Kate A.D., if you remember her, um, but all the time with, with Royal Marines and, and some American soldiers and others, creating a no-fly zone for the Kurds. It was you know, so exciting, and to, and to think that you, know, you were paid, modestly, of course, as journalists, but paid to do something that most people, well, certainly I, would pay to be allowed to do uh, was amazing. So I'd always thought that I'd be a political journalist because I'd studied politics, I was fascinated by it, I consumed political biographies at the time, but I did have this taste for travel. So after about a decade of political journalism, I did manage to move across from being the chief political correspondent of the BBC to being Rome correspondent uh, and then the North, North America business correspondent based in New York. Because there are some journalists who get involved in war coverage and become completely taken over by it. Mm. I know we're a Davis um, and uh, I've interviewed him on several occasions. In fact, his uh, eldest daughter was in primary school with my uh, daughter. And uh, he uh, is somebody who seems to get some adrenaline out of putting his life at risk. And I remember doing an interview with him after he'd been in Libya and I think there were at least three occasions when he came close to death while covering Libya for the BBC. Is that something that would appeal to you? You obviously were in the first Gulf War, but did you at any stage think about going down that particular It's direction? an old cliche that you're never as alive as when you're near death. And I think, you know, when I was 22 and young, free and single, the you know, I almost fantasised about being killed in the crossfire and somehow immortalised and why not die at 22, you know, in the heat of battle rather than grow old disgracefully. Um, but, um, you know, as you, certainly for me as I've aged, that wasn't a sort of, didn't seem like a great idea. And certainly as a father of young children, I, I didn't want them to go through that. I think Wirra, uh, apart from being a great guy in general, is one of the good guys who has managed to do a lot of that highly addictive, high adrenaline, dangerous, crazy, mesmerising stuff and emerge a completely calm uh, well-functioning, signed-up member of the human race. Another good friend of mine, Raggy Omar, is the same. But for the two of them, I can name you 20, maybe even 200, who've gone mad either on sex, drugs, rock and roll, or on God, uh, or a warped combination of both in a schizophrenic kind of way. But um, I admire those who can do that time and time again. I think the foreign postings I did later down the line, put it mildly, Rome was not a hardship post. 
Um, there was a fascinating time when I went out with the police in Naples, which was the most violent city in, in Europe at the time. There was a, an internal war going on, uh, going on in the Camorra. Um, and we turned up on the scene when the guy, you know, was literally taking his last breath and there was blood on the streets and it was early in the morning. It, you know, disgracefully to say it, but it made a great piece of television for the 10 o'clock news that night. But in general, Rome was about Berlusconi and the Pope and truffles and beautiful boats and beautiful La Scala Opera House reopens. There was a piece on wine made in a prison as a great way of rehabilitating prisoners. There was a piece on shoes being made in the Marquet, a sort of alternative to globalization where they keep it in the country and uh, diversify in a different way. It was every day was a was a joy. I absolutely loved it. And in a in a funny sort of way, North America was the same. There were sort of quite some rough things, but it was mainly a case of exploring expanding boundaries, people who were pushing the boundaries of technology, people who were doing things that hadn't been tried before. Fascinating. So you were in New York in the George Bush years? I was in New York when Hillary Clinton was chosen to be a senator for New York. So I still remember doing a live from my own apartment. And it was at very short notice for a very important Radio 4 programme that always wants the best guests. But I actually interviewed a lawyer in the jazz uh, industry and uh, an Upper West Side uh, woman, I can't remember her role now, but basically they were my landlords and they were living down below and they were married to one in each other. But they were great speakers and um, they were devout Democrats and good, good people to talk about Hillary. But I think the other things that happened, there was the Enron trial, the big white-collar crime trial of the century. There was Conrad Black, round that anyone in journalism would be familiar with. I covered that trial. Uh, Hurricane Katrina slammed into New Orleans. Uh, so I looked at the aftermath, you know, the impact on the economy and all that kind of stuff. I didn't get to cover the politics very much beyond when Mitt Romney went for the nomination first time round, And I actually got to go to his launch because nobody from Washington wanted to go to Detroit or wherever it was. He was a Mormon, of course. He was. He believes that the Garden of Eden is somewhere in middle America and that uh, you and I could have... Uh, a number of wives, if we wanted to. But when I met him, first of all, you know, he does have, or certainly did have, rock idol good looks, if people use that old-fashioned phrase now, terribly good-looking, hugely competent, and one Massachusetts, which is, you know, about as... about as I, I get my blue and red confused in the States, but about as uh, left-leaning uh, as the valleys are around here, and he took it for the other side. So, uh, undoubtedly, a very, very talented politician and I wonder if he's the proof that uh, Alistair Campbell was right about you shouldn't do God if you want to get elected because it kind of gets in the way of all the other things that people see. Because the thing about uh, him was that there was an expectation that he may well win because of the huge uh, money that he's got. I mean he's an extremely wealthy man isn't he? Yeah. Um, but it didn't actually work for him. No wealthy, good looking, I, I don't remember how many kids he has but it felt like there was you know half a dozen of them, all of them faultlessly beautiful with you know a wife from uh, central casting whenever he opened his mouth good stuff seemed to come out but Welsh, it didn't think, work was she? Yeah. I missed that angle, God I should have done that but cut to another uh, election where Mitt Romney was the candidate and dared to criticise 
London's preparedness for the Olympics. And I was working for a very different politician by then called Boris Johnson, who at the height, at the very peak of his powers, was able to stand up in Hyde Park, London, cheered by a crowd of about 60,000 people, eating out of his hands. And he said, there's some chap called Romney. He thinks we're not ready. Are we ready? Yes, we are. And he was able, at the height of his power, to make Mitt Romney, certainly in London at least, look completely diminished as a figure. So let's talk about the transition from journalism to acting on behalf of a politician. I think you were approached to work for David Cameron, weren't you? I was, whilst I was in New York. I was. Um, I had. Um, I had covered the Michael Howard campaign as a BBC correspondent, they always put a correspondent on each campaign. I got to know a lot of people around him, and one of them was Rachel Whetstone, who at the end of the campaign went off to work for Google, but she needed a journalist referee. And she asked whether I'd be her referee, and I said yes. And uh, she said, well, if I get the job, you know, I owe you a favour. And I went for the uh, post in New York and uh, said, well, it would be a big help if you could get me an interview with the Google founders. And to her credit, to this day she did, and I flew over to the West Coast to interview Larry and Sergey and Eric Schmidt, who really gave the more substantive interview. He was the Attorney General. Uh, he was the CEO of, um, of Google, the money man behind the geeks, essentially, who spotted the opportunity. And then, if you Google him, became quite famous for you know, being a bit of a ladies' man in, in quite a big way. Uh, but I had no inkling of that at the time. And um, she, of course, is married to Steve Hilton, who was David Cameron's head of strategy. Cameron was in opposition at the time. And two of them basically cornered me over dinner and said, your country needs you. You've got to fly back and meet David Cameron. And I did, but um, didn't quite work out. Didn't go to work for him at the time. I carried on in my journalistic career for another two or three years and then went to work for Boris, who I'd known for quite a long time. Did they think that you were sympathetic to their cause then, the Conservatives? I don't know if they thought I was sympathetic. They must... They, I, well, I think... I know that Rachel thought that... Uh, Linton Crosby thought this. A lot of Conservatives think this. The BBC is extremely hostile to their cause. So from being on the same battle bus for four or five year, uh, weeks and from talking to Michael Howard every day, including about his time at Llanelli Grammar School and things that he doesn't talk about to most journalists... You do, on a human level, bond, and I think they realised that I wasn't hostile. And then, of course, it makes enormously good sense to hire somebody unexpected, somebody who challenges the perception that you are a party that hates the BBC and through that hates the NHS and doesn't care for poor people and all the rest of it. In one hire, you can send out a very different signal and somebody who's not from the metropolitan London elite, somebody who didn't go to Eton or uh, they used to call George Osborne oik because he hadn't gone to Eton, he'd gone to St Paul's, which of course is just as uh, elitist and uh, even more expensive perhaps. So I think I can see the rationale but it didn't happen. Whereas with Boris, I Boris was certainly at the time politically enigmatic. I remember having to explain this to my father, who was open to any politics as long as it was liberal, Labour or Plaid Cymru, uh, just not conservative. But when I explained that Boris 
wanted an amnesty for illegal immigrants, that he'd opposed the immigration cap, that he had campaigned harder than Ken Livingstone did to spread the use of the London living wage and hike it in London, that he never tired of boasting about the 300 languages and cultural diversity of London that gave it its uh, richness, as well as cutting crime 40%, which is now back out of control, violent crime, uh, as well as delivering more Keynesian-esque uh, investment in transport than anyone before him, then it becomes hard to sort of knock that agenda unless you are so deeply, profoundly, irredeemably tribal yourself that or that you can't see be behind the colour of the rosettes. We don't hear much of that kind of agenda from him these days. No, I fear that Boris lost his way and he got re-elected in a left-leaning city mid-recession in the immediate aftermath of what we know as the omni-shambles budget of George Osborne, it was almost miraculous. And that would have never happened had, as I understand it, at least one in five Labour uh, voters in London not voted for him. He was a very unifying figure in London at the time, not only liked because he made people smile, but a very effective mayor by any sort of professional standards. Since then, I think, he's become more conservative, certainly more divisive. He took a wild stab at the Eurosceptic fringe where I always used to say and discuss with him, you know, you go out on a limb and there's, it's pretty cold out there unless you want to spend the rest of your life with Nigel Farage and Bill Cash and charming people like that. It's very sad from my point of view that that's where Boris went. Uh, I don't think he has one sibling who doesn't regret that profoundly. His father regrets it. Most of us who worked with him in the first term, where most of us had some sort of history or personal loyalty to him, uh, were in despair when he did. And I think he's paid an extremely heavy price for it. I think he would have been Prime Minister if he'd carried on as the kind of politician he was as Mayor of London. I'd be astonished if he ended up as Prime Minister now. Because there was that extraordinary business, wasn't there, where at the time of the referendum he wrote two pieces, two yeah. columns, one of which was supporting Remain and the other which was published was supporting Leave. What on earth was that all about? Yeah, you know, I understand people who write down pros and cons of shall we go to Italy or to France this summer, but if I was to tell my wife that I'd written out a list of pros and cons of marrying her versus some other woman and lucky you, I chose you... It's not very flattering, is it? It's not very convincing. It just suggests that it's a flip of a coin on something that should be deeper than that. Why it hurts for me, I think, is because Boris is about as multilingual as it gets. He really is good at languages, um, not only ancient European languages, but a bunch of current ones as well. He knows the history of Europe with a deep and profound understanding and, dare I say, appreciation uh, he chose, of all the places a kind of rock star journalist like him could have based himself in his early years, to spend it in Brussels. Now, as you know, genuine Eurosceptics get twitchy just getting off the train in Brussels. They can't, the idea of spending four or five years there would drive them literally bonkers. So I can't think of anyone more culturally or indeed intellectually pro-European than you know the Boris I knew and worked for. And I think it was a... It was a wild miscalculation that it was a free hit, that he could do a little bit of positioning as a Brexiteer, not deliver Brexit, so therefore most people would have moved on, forgotten all about it, but those people who are obsessed with that, i.e. the dominant force in the 
internal conservative electorate would have remembered and it would have benefited him and he would have outmaneuvered virtually everyone else in the race. Unfortunately, he was such an effective communicator, contributed so much to the campaign that he actually delivered it. And we all remember the shock on his face and Michael Gove's uh, when it turned out that they now had to deal with this. And what did they do? He was looking at an open goal. He could have walked into number 10 at the time. And what did he do? When Michael Gove sort of questioned his ability, he stood down. He backed off. He didn't even take the shot. Didn't hit the crossbar. Didn't miss the goal. Goalie didn't save it. He just didn't take the shot. And I think that troubles him and will trouble him. Why do you think he wasn't able to follow through? I think he was surprised by the turn of events. I don't think he thought he would deliver it. I think he was astonished and slightly petrified by what that would mean, what had been unleashed. And I also think that the kind of people who were around him at that stage, who had not only allowed him to come out in favour of Brexit, but encouraged him and taunted him, perhaps, so that he did that, there was none of them... I don't know, brave enough, loyal enough to say, you've got to go through with this. And much as I disagreed with him over what he did over Brexit, having done that, then the logical conclusion was to see it through. And I think a lot of people who voted Brexit rather unconvinced at the time would have kind of gone along with it if Boris had seen it through. And if you think of Brexit now, the last two years has been a sort of damage limitation job while still so-called honouring the... uh, the vote of the people, uh, the view of the people. But for Boris, it wouldn't have been a damage limitation job. It would have been a journey. It would have been an adventure. It would have been a, you know, a slightly mad roller coaster ride to a better place. And, and his track record shows that against the odds, he does kind of pull it off more often than not. So at least we would have had a fighting chance of replacing our relationship with the European Union with something better. I don't think it would have worked, but it would have been, I'd have preferred to put money on that than the slow, steady death by a thousand cuts uh, and abandonment of all hope, ambition, reason, dare I say, <laughs> uh, that, that we have had over the last two years until we reach the point now where we just can't agree on any way forward. That bumbling buffoon persona like, that he likes to portray, is that genuine or is it a way of seeking to deflect scrutiny? It's not deflecting scrutiny. I think it's this thing that they, I'm told, they teach you not as well as they taught Boris. Uh, I think he's, he's unique. But they teach you not to intimidate other people with the education you have. They teach you to put other people at ease. Because if you rock up to most groups of people and you say, I'm richer than you, I'm stronger than you, I'm more intelligent than you, I speak more languages than you, I can write in a way in half an hour that you can only dream of producing, you know, if you had the rest of your life to produce one column, you might be able to pull off one. If you went around the place telling people or just oozing, projecting the ability that he has, he would have been despised from from 15 earlier perhaps whereas what he does do is play the clown put people at ease then there's nothing to resent there was one very telling question that Andrew Marr put to David Cameron and to Boris when he showed a picture of the Bullington Club in all their glory in inverted commas and David Cameron said there are things we've all done that we're ashamed of 
does anyone believe him? He was really ashamed of that, or wasn't it good fun at the time? They showed the same to Boris and say, do you feel ashamed? And Boris said, there are so many things to be ashamed of in my life, I'm not sure where that comes in the pecking order. Now, that answer is more truthful, it's more endearing, it's more in tune, and it is, it's not the answer of a buffoon, it's the answer of somebody who realises that he needs to put other people at their ease, or they will hate him. Uh, unfortunately for him, he's ended up in a position where, through his own fault, at least half the population hate him already, and the, even the other side are not sure whether they trust him. But when he was the Foreign Secretary, there were a number of diplomatic faux pas, to put it at its uh, lowest, um, that he was responsible for. I mean, there was one, for example, with a British-Iranian woman, where he uh, actually uh, said in public that uh, she'd been working for the Thompson Foundation, when in fact... Uh, she hadn't been, and it got her into more trouble. And Yeah, got yeah. her sentence sort of uh, extended. Yes, there's a, a cavalier uh, approach at the very least there, which, which is a form of, very serious form of incompetence, which I would again put down to sort of distraction, because there were a lot of so-called gaffes when I worked for him. There were no gaffes at all. They were things that most politicians would not say. But that's a different thing. You know, Gaff suggests that you shoot from the hip and you're not conscious of what you're doing. When Boris said, no Kosovo-style ethnic cleansing on my watch, Mr Cameron, that was not a gaff. That was not something that slipped out because a presenter caught him off guard. He wanted to stop the government reducing the benefits cap across the UK because in London it would move the, mean that poor people would have to move out to their homes. Now if you start talking about benefit levels and you start naming the benefits and you start talking about pounds and pence, you lose your audience in a second. When you say no Kosovo-style social cleansing on my watch, you've got people's attention. And guess what? The government had to deliver a kind of Boris, Boris clause to delay the implementation of that in London for a year. That was a very effective piece of communication, masquerading as something that came from the, off the top of his head. You put forward a case uh, when you worked for him of Boris Johnson as some kind of uh, social liberal on the left of the Conservative Party, he moved to the right afterwards. You can't really put forward the same kind of case for Rupert Murdoch, who you subsequently went to work for, can you? Rupert Murdoch is a fascinating guy, he has chosen not to reveal more about himself, but if people of a certain political persuasion were more interested uh, in finding out what, for instance, he thought of people like David Cameron and initially George Osborne, though he warmed to him, they may have been more sympathetic. If they'd ever caught Rupert Murdoch alone and asked him whether he'd be tempted ever to back the Labour Party if another Miliband had led it, they might have been fascinated by his answer. Rupert Murdoch certainly sees himself as a guy, yes, a kind of pewter spoon in his mouth in that his father owned a few regional newspapers, but not the global empire that he has built. He went to Oxford from down under and, surprise, surprise, found himself patronised, a sort of outsider, looked down upon, a bit too sort of money was a bit too fresh, a bit too grubby, a bit too in his hands, still had to work a bit too hard for it. And the truth about Rupert Murdoch you know, I'm not going to say he's a saint nor, nor the nicest man on earth, but he took on received wisdom and establishments and challenged them where they had become lazy or corrupt or anyone who reads a newspaper today to a certain extent owes it to Rupert Murdoch for stopping print workers from dictating editorial policy and for making newspapers prohibitively expensive. 
Think of how he's changed things in sport, in broadcasting, in newspapers. Fascinating man who's, who's done an awful lot. And because of that, has no sympathy whatsoever with Trustafarians, people from an overprivileged background who get it too easy and who end up in charge not knowing what to do with it. So, very interesting man. But I took the job mainly because I saw 3,000 journalists, all of whom were seen and portrayed and castigated for being corruptors of public life, people who had all, every single one of them, bugged the phone of a murdered school child and, and bribed police officers and prison officers and all the rest of it. Only a handful of people were ever charged. Even fewer went to prison. Most of the excellent journalists there, and when I say journalists, I mean the cartoonist, Peter Brooks, the columnist that everybody loves, the sort of... Uh, the people who beaver away night and day to try and make sense of the world, Marie Colvin, who lost her life, sort of reporting Syria. The idea that you could attack 3,000 people doing different things for a living because a handful of them had got carried away in a super-aggressive tabloid war at the time was, again, to the counterintuitive wannabe barrister in me, just offensive. And I'm genuinely proud, whatever anyone else thinks, that I went in there and played my little part in letting people see those people as journalists yet again and let the newspapers speak for themselves so that News International stopped being something that we talk about and we talk once again about the Sun and the Times and the Sunday Times. You shut down the news of the world, but obviously that was uh, after there had been criminal charges laid. To what extent do you think he was aware of uh, the abuses that were taking place? I don't know. I mean, some people assume that, you know, a man running a a global empire should know, you know, about every sort of coffee cup that that goes walking out of the building. Some people have a more realistic view. I mean, the impressive thing about Rupert Murdoch is he does know everything in the cost of, you know, a piece of advertising. He could tell you per column inch, and he could tell you where the ink comes from and what density of paper you need if you're going to add another few pages. He knows every aspect of the business. He is devoutedly committed to uh, newspapers, and editorially, of course, he's, he's, he's obsessed. But whether he knows how reporters get their stories, you know the deal here. A reporter makes a point of saying, you don't need to know, trust me. I have a good source. And if you're a wise editor, you probably don't ask the question sometimes. So I think it's more likely than not. The honest answer is I don't know. But it's more likely than not that he would have no idea specifically uh, how certain stories were got. There are those, of course, who argue that his influence has been pernicious. Uh, and with his TV interest as well, he um, has had too dominating a role. And I guess... In some cases, it's a question of the fact that the perception that individuals have of what he is doing does not conform with what they would like a proprietor to do. But do you think that his influence has been pernicious? I think the most important thing he's done is pump a huge amount of money into newspapers that otherwise would have failed. And in the case of The Times, I think it's currently the best newspaper on what we still, some of us call Fleet Street. Um, It's a newspaper that opposed Brexit. It's a newspaper that has done more, I think, over the last two years to challenge Brexit in an intelligent way from the perspective of a company boardroom, perhaps, but day in, day out, relentlessly chip away at it. That doesn't really sit very easily with the idea that Rupert Murdoch has this myopic view and all his newspapers have to toe that editorial line and just blast it like a sort of piece of propaganda. His... 
TV interests in the UK, Sky are as you know responsible a broadcaster as the BBC, legally obliged to. But I don't think anyone at Sky would tell you that he has ever tried to influence what they cover nor the way they cover it. So you're down to a newspaper called The Sun, which he said, if you want to know what I think, read The Sun. And yes, he's put a lot of money into it, so editorially, probably you can hear his voice in it at times. But it's an it's a more nuanced, interesting voice. He wrestled over the Scottish independence referendum. He was there the weekend before the vote, you know, pictured in Aberdeen, I think. And he managed to, I can't remember the photo, but I still remember him saying the heart says one thing, the head the other. That close, if you talk to the SNP, they felt they had an ally in him. Now, that doesn't sit comfortably with the idea of this evil genius who has sought to just take Britain in in one direction uh, in order to suit his own corporate interests. And And the ultimate proof of this is that recently, now that he is selling his company, most people have sort of, among his critics, have bemoaned how he still has power. They're missing the story. The real story here is that Murdoch has managed to sort of make an obscene amount of money for getting rid of assets that he was probably done with anyway. So he... Where he sits at the moment, he is untouched with a new woman in his life. His his uh, professional daughter, if you like, in Rebecca Brooks, is back at the helm of News International. The Times recently made a profit of nine million, which is extraordinary in this day and age. The Sun is still pretty influential in British public life, and he's just made a wad of cash by selling out to one of the biggest companies in the world. You know, it doesn't look that bad from his perspective. Has he also done something that most other newspapers have not managed to do, which is to make a success of a newspaper paywall for their website? He has with the Times. I think there's lots of lessons there. If you have an average readership where the household income is over £100,000 and people value education and they value knowledge and they value you know, reading Matthew Paris as opposed to some so-called citizen journalist oxymoron then you can pull it off. So The Economist is doing well, The Financial Times is doing well, The Times is doing extremely well. It doesn't work across the board. It certainly didn't work for The Sun. And we're all trying to reinvent the commercial side of newspapers. But I think what he never lost sight of, and I don't lose sight of, is that after food, drink, or drink, food, clothing, shelter, the next basic requirement that all of us human beings have is for news. News of ourselves, our family, our club, our tribe, our nation, our sort of, you know, people who are like us, follow the same God or don't follow the same God or any God or whatever. It's news. And there will always need to be news and news done professionally, news done by people who sign up to deliver it accurately, who care about, yes, they can have a bias. They can say, this is what I want to happen, but they've got the names of the people right in the story. They've got to get the facts in the story right. I don't mind opinion. God, where would we be without sort of a point of view? But you have to be accurate and responsible and, dare I say, a good communicator. You're just about to start your second series with um, S4C. What was it that attracted you back to Wales, if you like, to work on this political programme, Welsh language? Put simply, is the freedom to do so. I've gone from one big job to the other uh, from my early 20s and though I've never stopped broadcasting in Welsh from wherever I've been in the world 
when Radhya Kumri rings up, anyone with a conscience will say, of course I'll do that 2A tomorrow morning, whatever time of day it is here. But the freedom of deciding last Christmas that I didn't want to go to another big corporate job, that I wanted to have more of a balance in my life. And that gave me the freedom to be available to write for GQ, which I now do, write for the New European, which I do more sporadically, and indeed sort of do stuff back in Wales. So today I've presented Jason Mohammed's phone-in on Radio Wales, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And to go from being a political anorak like myself to a world where, of all the things we're discussing on air today, it won't be Brexit, as long as you're clear on that, is very, very healthy, I think every now and then to sort of bring your feet back to earth. And the prospect of working with a fantastic, young, enthusiastic team at ITV Wales to do a political programme and to try and do what, having not done political journalism for more than a decade, I've reflected on what is wrong with it. And the chance to try and do it differently was just irresistible. I'm sure you're aware that there are those in the Welsh language community who regard you as a traitor, and I've been present at events where you've been speaking, where people on the same t- table as me, uh, who are, shall we say, quite prominent in Welsh public life, have been shouting at you and booing you. And in your last series, of course, you had Katie Hopkins on your programme, and there are that, in a sense, fueled the the dislike that some people within the Welsh language community have for you because they say. There is this horrible woman who hates the Welsh language, who uh, wants it shut down, uh, wants public money to not be spent on it anymore, uh, ridicules it, and then you invite her onto the TV to talk about her um, experience or perception of the Welsh language. That just exacerbates this feeling that these people in the Welsh language community have, that you are a traitor to your roots. What's your perspective on that? I think the general point about Traitor is, you know, that probably happened when I went to work for for Boris. I don't think it was ever an issue before then. And again, you know, uh, I'm never going to be one of these who signs up to the idea that we've all got to live in a couple of counties of Wales and live our entire lives through the medium of Welsh and, you know, just shout from the sidelines with no influence whatsoever over the great figures uh, whether we like them or not, who do influence our lives. I make no apology for spending most of my career in journalism across the border because more Welsh people read the Times than probably most Welsh newspapers, not to mention uh, The Sun. Katie Hopkins is is a tough one. I, to be honest, didn't really want to interview her, but editorially and as a journalist, I feel 100% justified in doing that because... I have always personally, as somebody who's lived in England for almost my entire life from the age of 18, always sought to try to understand why, why they think it's funny to sort of take the piss of the Welsh, why English people think it's okay to take the piss of the Welsh in a way that they wouldn't dream of doing with other nations, why they feel they can mispronounce the name of a place that's a couple of hundred miles from where they're broadcasting from, and they would take great heed not to mispronounce the name of a place two or three thousand miles away. I make no apologies. You know, I'm, I don't feel vulnerable to people who, who criticise. I've, I've, I've argued my corner long enough. I've had the insults. And I've been at the coalface there, and I've brought up three children who speak Welsh to them, did their GCSE in Welsh last year. I'm proud of 
my Welsh roots and I'm, uh, I see myself hopefully as some kind of uh, undercover ambassador for Wales across Offa's Dyke. But there is a justification, I think, for trying to understand what is going on of all the targets she could have picked. Why pick on the Welsh? And I'm, you know, sorry if those people, the only thing they want to see is somebody like Katie Hopkins put in stocks and have rotten tomatoes thrown at them. But I'm a journalist. And I was trying to find out what is it and the level of ignorance. She obviously thought that Leanne Wood ran Wales. Now, exposing that, I think, is a vaguely useful favour to humankind rather than all shout at her at Twitter. Why not? Why don't we just interview her and find out the level of ignorance, the level of animosity? And to be honest, some of the points she raised are points that you and I hear from people in Wales who do not speak Welsh, who wonder, you know, even with the best of intentions, if they send their children to a Welsh school, and they're not going to be able to help them with their homework. It's a perfectly reasonable question for a parent to ask themselves, is my child going to suffer if I can't help them with a history essay? We should be able to have these discussions without somehow having to go into the red corner or the green corner or the blue corner and hurl insults at each other. And in the end, the tragedy of the Katie Hopkins thing is that she was on a Bidani layer for something like two and a half minutes in total. And during the same series, we had a special and all the three candidates to lead Plaid Cymru, all three candidates to lead the Labour Party, a fascinating interview with Ron Davis, who you also interviewed uh, at great length. You know how interesting his views are. But when he was on air and the storm broke on Twitter about Katie Hopkins having been interviewed it's tragic that people who claim to be interested in politics in Wales are more interested in ranting about an interview that hadn't even gone out on Twitter than they were listening to an elder statesman like Ron. OK, let's bring things right up to date. We're in the midst of what is probably the most profound political crisis of our lifetime. There's a big vote that's due to take place as we record this in the House of Commons about Theresa May's deal on Brexit. How have you observed or what are your observations about the position that we're in now so far as Brexit is concerned? I think we basically sold a fantasy and surprise surprise at some point reality bites and the people who are most disillusioned of course are the Brexiteers because they told us that there was this brave new world, this great big adventure and it turns out that the best deal we can get out of Europe is one that leaves us you know, not taking back control but surrendering all control over things that they still control us over they told us we'd make more money and we're actually going to be poorer, maybe not much poorer, it depends who you listen to but certainly nobody's pretending that leaving the European Union is going to boost GDP uh, not for the rest of my working life at least. So we've ended up in a position politically though where there doesn't seem to be a majority in the House of Commons for any course of action which is a rather tragic state of affairs and everybody feels obliged to honour the will of the people expressed though it was very tightly uh, and based on quite dubious propaganda to a large extent but I feel for the Prime Minister and I think what she can do is she can look herself in the mirror and she can look Britain in the mirror and say I didn't advocate this. I didn't vote for it. I picked up the pieces when the boys who did left the scene. And I have done everything anyone could possibly expect of me. She has certainly shown herself to be 
masochistically hardcore. I don't think she'd take any more pain. And if you imagine a special forces soldier captured behind enemy lines, she has endured as much pain as she can before Ashley finally turning around and saying, it can't be done. I think what's going to happen in the next 24 hours is it'll become apparent that her deal cannot go through. She cannot be toppled. So we have a prime minister who cannot be toppled, wedded to a deal that cannot be passed in a parliament that is deadlocked and with a clock ticking 12 weeks from this week towards a catastrophic no-deal Brexit. And in that situation, I think that she can look the British people in the eye and say, I can't think of any other course of action other than send this decision back to you and offer you the chance, with the benefit of hindsight, to remain or to take my deal or to endorse, because it wasn't what you endorsed two years ago, endorse this idea of crashing out without any arrangements and dealing with all the fallout of you know, stockpiling medicine and planes not being able to fly and all the rest of it, and give the choice back to the people, and hope that the people can come to a definitive choice the second time round, and call it a final say. It would be difficult to have a referendum, and unusual to have a referendum, where there were three options, wouldn't it? Unusual, maybe, but I'm sure it, it can be done better people than me can work that out or you know do you know what if you had a Christmas present Martin that you don't particularly like until today I think you could have taken it back even without a receipt and and got it back if you have recently taken out life insurance or changed your mortgage or you know a new bank loan you have a cooling off period where you can take it back if you've been misled into buying it if you were sold a personal pension in the 1980s that turned out not to have been a good idea for you, you could even today go back and ask a regulator to look at it. So is it that unreasonable, is it that undemocratic to say two years after discovering a lot more about what we voted on two years ago, is it unreasonable to say that we're entitled to reconsider this? And isn't the very definition of democracy that the consent of the people is given on an ongoing basis, not as a one-off event? You know, Hitler was voted in in 1933. Nobody thinks that that means that everything he did thereafter had the consent of the people. It was a snapshot, a very important snapshot, and a snapshot we cannot dismiss. But the idea that somehow one poll taken, you know, even parking all the doubts about the way it was conducted, but one poll at one given point in time trumps all other considerations... I don't buy that anyway. And when Parliament can't deliver the deal, and when Parliament is logjammed, then I think we have to go back and think outside the box and ask the people again. So, three options. Would it be first past the post or alternate vote? Again, though I did do my PPE for three years, I think there are better people than me to work out how it is. The more conditions you put, it's a bit like the more kit you put on the bike, and the more things that can go wrong, the more straightforward the decision is, the more clear-cut it is, and, you know, a win is a win, then I think, hopefully, the better it is in terms of, of moving on. And the worst thing possible about Brexit is the massive distraction it is from all the other challenges that we have. And dare I say, that's that's the problem with the birth of this whole movement towards this whole obsession, this thing that has destroyed the Conservative Party as, as it once was, as the most efficient fighting force in Western democracy and turned it from a pragmatic, uh, compassionate fighting force into this ideological bunch of renegades uh, at one level is that it has been a distraction from all the other opportunities at the moment and the challenges, and they have blamed Europe for a whole load of problems that are homegrown, the lack of skills, the 
second-rate quality of education for a lot of people, the high price of housing, the massive gap between the haves and the have-nots, the lack of aspiration, the fact that somebody can travel here across a continent or across a world, learn their third, fourth or fifth language, upskill themselves so that they can do things that they didn't even do in their own home country, and they can do that more easily than some of our homegrown people can, says volumes about how we have taken our eye off the ball in Wales and in the UK, and the idea of picking a scapegoat called Europe and saying everything will be fine as long as we get these handful of bureaucrats in Brussels off our back. It's just been a fantasy from the start, and the tragedy is that we some people gave into it. What's your hunch about how things are going to play out? I like to believe that we can be surprised, and we are pleasantly surprised in politics all the time. Um, so I have a hunch that it's not impossible that, you know, when when Theresa May looks them in the eye one last time and says, you know, if you don't vote for my deal, Boris, Moggers, whatever they call each other, that might be the end of Brexit. That, not the privacy of the polling booth, but when they look at that lobby and they think, what if this is true? What if this does unravel at this point, that she may yet get her deal? Far more likely is that she loses heavily by 100, 140 maybe, and then she has three days to come up with a plan B. I don't think there's anything in Brussels that will change the dynamics. I don't think there's anything in the Commons that will change the dynamics. So we are looking at the end, I think, at a rerun of this, putting the boat back in the water and having another referendum, hoping that that will be more conclusive. And what do you think the result of such a referendum would be? Well, do you know, this Saturday is what the great distinguished pollster Peter Riddle calls crossover day. It's the day when, just in virtue of demographics, that the number of old people with a higher propensity to vote for Brexit will have left us, for hopefully a better place, of course, and the number of people who will have come into voting age with a propensity to vote against Brexit will mean that the UK becomes a pro-Remain territory. Now, that is assuming nobody has changed their mind. I find it hard to believe, without Michael Gove shouting, ignore experts, you know, what does your surgeon know about your heart condition? He's only a surgeon. What does the governor of the Bank of England know about interest rates and economic growth, eh? I think people will have clocked some of what they have not only heard from Mark Carney and those high and mighty guys over the last two years, but from their line manager in their local factory, from the farmer at the end of the street, from the person who hasn't applied for university in Bangor or changed his or her mind about coming there because they sense that Wales may not be as welcoming as we like to sing that it is. And I think that, and I like to think, and maybe I'm deluded here, that we have sobered up a little bit and we would approach this with you know, heart and head slightly differently and we would find a clean majority for trying to make our relationship with Europe work better rather than turn our backs on it. Kato Harry, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.